0: Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. I'm going to start off doing something I don't usually do. I'm going to apologize because this episode has me a little hyper. Uh, You'll hear me being a little all over the place and a little hyper because I'm interviewing Greg Pernhagen, who grew up a few blocks from me in beautiful Massapequa Park, Long Island. Um, We haven't seen each other since 1985, and a lot of water went under that bridge. Um, What you will hear us talk about is Massapequa Park, about the fact that Greg was adopted, about his search for information about his birth parents, about his opera career. He works on a regular basis with a gentleman named Philip Glass. Greg also uh, created and starred in an award-winning show about Desi Arnaz. And he also uh, directs the Xavier Kuga band when there's not a pandemic. Um, There's a lot to Greg and there's a lot to talk about. We also talk about his being a gay man and surviving the eighties in New York at a time when we had a completely different pandemic and about his marriage to a gentleman for a very long time i'll let him tell you about it um but you know he's he's had a very fascinating life and i'm excited to share my friend greg with you the same way i'm excited to share abe's muffins with you they're allergen free they taste great they come in all kinds of flavors I'm really addicted to the brownies. I need to get some brownies as soon as I'm done recording this. But you get to listen to me talk to Greg Bernhagen. Greg Bernhagen, thank you so much. Welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin?
1: It is a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to see you like your face in motion
0: as opposed to a post on Facebook. That's weird. So um, I don't know if I'll be mentioning it in the intro. I don't know when it's going to go on. You and I literally grew up blocks from each other. I think you are on Lakeshore Drive. I was on South Park. South Park. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's right. Lakeshore Drive was different. Yes. And I have, well... You're a year older than me? Yes, I believe so. I, yeah. And so we first, what's funny is we probably went to all the same schools. I don't know when you moved into the neighborhood. I went to Parkway Oaks. I did go to Parkway Oaks. Okay. And so your sister, Tammy, is actually the person I knew better at the time because we we're in the same grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and junior high. Um, Millane. Right. Which, by the way, both of those schools... Literally no longer exists. I and I and I don't, I don't, does
1: East Memorial, I went to East Memorial for a few years. Oh, I don't know. Because I was in the MAL program. That's you know, with Hetty and Eric and Maggie. And yeah. I think that that may still be a school.
0: It might be, but they got rid of the
1: MAL program right well, after think, you. Yeah, we were the last crew actually. I for a while they had something else going on because one of my one of Tammy's. Sons was in a, a, a gifted program, but it wasn't, you know, they didn't take the kids out. It, it was just, it was handled differently.
0: Yeah. Uh, your way sounds a little like a science fiction thing where they call out the bright ones and then mold them of, the way the government wants them. It kind of felt like that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sixties and the seventies. These were weird times. I mean, this is back when they thought LSD was going to help people with as a truth serum but i don't want to get lost in that conversation um uh but i want to get back to i i've literally told my wife several times when we see a great dane i say you know (laughs) i had friends who had a great dane who was a harlequin great dane i forget his name rupert oh and rupert was so big i i didn't go to your house very often i was just to do some kind of work with tammy like some school work i think we weren't like Uh buds None of us were like super close friends or anything, but I remember being at your kitchen table, and Rupert wanted some food, but was very well trained. But literally rested his head on the table. Yep, yep. Like he's a big dog. I, I loved him, by the way. I'm, he I'm wants, sure he's long gone, but
1: oh yeah, we we still we tell stories about him. Um, actually, I'll tell you maybe the best story about him of all. Um, you remember Michelle Constantino?
0: That is, I mean, it's a name. Okay. I anyway, know. she,
1: she lived in the neighborhood. So, um, you know, Rupert was she was a theater pretty, person? No, no, she was just, uh, you know, in the neighborhood, but okay. um, we've like reconnected oh, cool. through, uh, I think at the last reunion and also just through Facebook, but, you know, Rupert was pretty well trained as he got older. I could walk him off the leash, you know, on that strip of woods across the street. And one time, um, I remember it was like in the winter, it was kind of a gray day and Eric Rosenblatt came over and he opened the door and Rupert, for some reason, he like had to go. And he was like right at the door. And before I could get him, I was like, don't let him out. And he, he ran out the door into the street. Michelle was driving her car with her mom and Rupert ran into the car, but like on the side. Right. And we were like, I, you know, we all like froze and, you know, and yelled and screamed. We thought, Oh my God, he's like going to get run over or hit. And the car, you know, they kept going and then they stopped and he just kept going over to the woods and he was fine, but he dented their side
0: door. (laughs) So. Wow. That's that's how big he was. (laughs) He was big. I still, well, I remember him to this day. And that was probably junior high school. Actually, it was because Tammy and I were working on a journalism project for an English class. Wow. I, that's all I remember. And I remember she was nice and I literally haven't talked to her probably since then, even in high school, I don't think our path, she might've been in the humanities thing. I don't, it's all such a blur. There's so much water under the bridge. I want to go back. I've looked at all your stuff on Facebook and a little research. I thought I would just ask you questions okay. growing up on long Island. You know, it's so funny. I went through this period. Once I was older, I lived in New York. I lived in Philly and Boston. and came back to New York. I had this feeling about long Island, like, Oh, that place. Yeah. Like I distanced myself from it, but as I've gone back and as I also look back at our growing up, we, we had it pretty darn good in many I, ways, I think.
1: I, I mean, I enjoyed growing up there. I enjoyed school. I mean, you know, when, once I got through junior high, which was, you know, torture. <laughs> um, but you know, high school was great. I mean, the like theater where you and I did you know the shows together, and band. So you were French horn, am I right?
0: I was my brother. Um, Your I was brother. a cellist. <gasps> yeah, my oh, brother Phil. Yes.
1: yes orchestra i mean right for like the hot minute because you know they tried to yeah I've, that's right they tried to make like a
0: symphony orchestra at one point probably yeah. so what was your instrument i'm blanking i, was, on I it. played the clarinet right and i was cellist okay and my biggest accomplishment in high school was i lettered this is probably the nerdiest thing anyone could <laughs> say i lettered in cello because i was in the all-state orchestra likewise i, I oh you lettered in clarinet i lettered in clarinet that's we are born to talk to each other <laughs> <laughs> uh but also we came from a time so i graduated in 79 you 78 Seventy eight. Yeah. right so so let me say so we were in the show oliver together yes and we had I, i've talked to jd kelly already he'll mm-hmm. be coming up um we were lucky enough to have, it was a big high school. There were a lot of people in our high school. 3,000. And we had an awesome theater program for a high school. Oh. Every year we put out an awesome musical, some straight plays. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in Oliver. And as soon as I was in that first show, like first rehearsal, I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with the rest of my life. Yeah, I just like. Everything about it was great. I was in s- several shows since then, and of course, I-, I-, I was an equity performer, stand up. I've done a lot of stuff in the yeah, theater. Yeah, you-, you went to the Groundlings, right? Uh, actually, no, but you're so close. I was uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. Upright That's what Citizens I did, or UCB. Brigade. Did you do any of that stuff?
1: Um, I never did anything like that. I, I did uh, some worked in a couple of studios, um, you know, for acting because I, I never studied acting until I was in my like very late 20s because I was always focused on the music. Um, I was actually a dance minor at NYU and I thought it would go kind of in the musical theater Broadway direction but then I transferred out of NYU to a conservatory and you know started training my voice more in the classical vein and that's kind of where things went and that led to the contemporary music scene, which is where I really kind of found my big, biggest niche, um, you know, and ended up working with like Philip Glass and Bjork and Meredith Monk and all the, you know, these other New York cats.
0: I know. I, I, when I saw your pictures of the Philip Glass stuff, and I think you were with Philip Glass in a picture, I was like, what? I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I so I want to, after high school, you mm-hmm. went to NYU
1: directly? I went directly to NYU Um, I was in a music ed program. And when I went back, you know, for sophomore year, uh, my advisor and a couple of of the teachers I had, you know, in theory and a keyboard person, they said, you should go and go to a conservatory and get like real training because you have the potential to have a a performing career and
0: you can always come back and teach later. So we think- That's fantastic. Like- That's not a story a lot of people get to tell. It's usually the reverse. People get called in and are told, I know you were really great in high school
1: and I know you
0: feel good about yourself, but maybe not so much this career for you. So that's really something.
1: And so I did it. I acted on it and I
0: transferred
1: uh, to Manus College.
0: That sounds extremely familiar and I don't know why. Where's that located?
1: Well, now it's part of the new school. Okay. Uh, it initially was a, a standalone school. You know, the three music schools in New York were Juilliard, Manhattan School, and Manus. And Manus was on the Upper East Side when I was there. And then they moved for a while. They were in a building on 85th. It was an old um, AT&T building or f- telephone company. But like, you know, but it didn't look, it didn't feel like a big skyscraper. It was it was like a big building, but they were there. And then they, you um, And then they moved downtown and got affiliated with the new school and got absorbed into the new school.
0: That's funny because the new school is literally one block from where I went to law school at Cardozo. So on Fifth Avenue and they just redid their, well, it feels like they just did. It's probably been there forever, but they have a fairly new building at the new school. Yeah. 13th. Yeah. um, mm -hmm. Wow. So when you went there to conservatory, was it voice or or, what was, was
1: it? It was voice. That was the, that was the focus.
0: And you sound like a baritone to me. Is that accurate? Yes, you are right. Okay. As a fellow baritone. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, And did you always think, first of all, I noticed in some of your information, you led the Xavier Cougar Cougar band. You and I have another affinity there, which is Cuban music. I mean, Xavier Cougar, very famous Cuban band leader. I have been married a few times. (laughs) I'm currently very happily married, done Uh with that whole thing. But my first marriage involved someone who loved to go Latin dancing. Wow. And I learned how to mambo with like much older Cuban, I guess I'd call them refugees, people who fled Cuba. The Upper West Side had a lot of these Cuban dance clubs at the time, and also Jersey. And one night we went and they're like, oh, this is going to be great. There's a live guy. I go. And it was Tito Puente's band, Wow. like live.
1: Yeah, and
0: people are dancing to Tito Puente, and his band was ridiculous. Like, and he was this like eighty something year old guy who probably could have done it in his sleep. He was like a human metronome, mm-hmm. yeah. but he still had so much joy playing these classic mambo songs. You know, what was oh. that? What what got you hooked on that music? Well, I mean the the
1: ironic thing about that is that that was like a project that I didn't come to until I was already 50. Oh. Um, so do you know, I mean, do you recall that I I was adopted and Tammy also, we were both adopted.
0: I did know, but I didn't know any of the story. I like literally your ethnicity, if I'm allowed to even say this is yeah. a complete question mark because I cannot and this is going to be the stupid white Jewish kid from Long Island. Like, I can't place what you look like other than Greg and Tammy. Do well, you know what I mean? So, well, guess,
1: well, when I in the print,
0: I do print modeling, commercial print modeling. Uh-huh.
1: My category is, you know, non-specific <laughs> ethnic or multicultural. You know, at, so that's very funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly how I get. Uh, that's my, you know, my slot in that world, which is actually. A really great slot because what it means is you can be Italian, you can be Spanish, you could be you know Moroccan, you can be etc. Et
0: and for people who don't know by the way, print modeling that Greg's talking about, he's not talking about what people call editorial though you may be talking editorial. Almost I think you're so. talking more commercial and character modeling, right? Yes. Okay so I, my little thing was I had a stint in character modeling also and when you go to those show, well now it's all digital, probably, a even before it, yeah. the pandemic. But I would show up at the castings, and I was thinner and younger. <laughs> and I got the comic, sort of like staring at a computer, wondering, you know, I did some stuff for Microsoft and whatever. Mm-hmm. When I got them, I would be sitting, and I'd see, oh, that's the Black version of me. That's the Puerto yes. Rican version of me. That's, And you're sort of the multi-ethnic, oh, good, he can be like, we're going to put him in the Spanish magazine. We could mm-hmm. also put you in a Greek magazine or yeah. in Israel. Like, I have no idea, which is really fantastic for you. Anyway, I took that away. Sorry. So you, you were about to yeah. talk about being adopted. So being adopted. So um, the fact
1: is that I am Cuban on my paternal side and Polish on the maternal side, biologically. And I knew that growing up. And, you know, Tammy is Japanese and Irish, <laughs> if you can believe that,
0: um, so I believe anything, frankly, I mean, given what we've lived through for the last four years, I, there is nothing I don't believe anymore. So, I, I mean, we, we
1: knew that growing up, our parents were very upfront, we knew we were adopted, it was never a, um, a secret. Right. And they told us, you know, when you're 18 years old, you can go to New York to the agency. And you can, you know, get some information about your biological family, if you so desire. And so I did look into it when I was 18. Um, well anyway I mean this is like the whole story of reuniting with my mom my birth mother but um, the
0: thing is well, that's it, interesting so yes no,
1: so well but I want to like so Cuban always knew I was Cuban I was like a big 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 fan of I Love Lucy growing up because Desi Arnaz was the only Latin male role model that I could look to growing up in Massapequa Park right. So I was always interested in the music, but you know I, I didn't have any of that culture growing up. and so I mean I, I felt much more shaped culturally by growing up you know in the household where I grew up, also going to school at the time that I went to school and the things that we learned and being in that program and being exposed to sort of you know, like the western canon of music and musical theater and Sure. plus songbook. all your
0: classmates were Jewish and Italian for the most well, part Mazza Pizza Park exactly <laughs> right. so, For people who don't know we call it Mazza Pizza because it's half Jewish half Italian. I yeah. somehow ended up more in the Italian section
1: um, I feel like. we, yeah we were kind of we like borderlined I mean there, there were yeah there, I mean there were lots of the Jappy girls who lived <laughs> nearby and you know then we had the Italian you know the Goombas and all of that. I mean, you know, my mom, you know, raised me. I mean, she was Italian-American. So that was actually, I kind of felt like the cultural vibe that we had growing up. was, that was a big part of it. But, um, I mean, this is like racing. It's like, yikes. Um, we have time. <laughs> I know. Well, it's just like, if you know, it's like I, because the adoption and finding my mom all has something to do with getting to Xavier Kugat. So, um but the fact is, I so I knew about the, the that music and that culture, but I was never really uh, felt a part of it until I read the Mambo Kings, you know, play songs of love. And then I was like, Oh my God. Okay. I get it. Like this is, that's my culture intrinsically. And I knew a little bit about my dad because I hadn't done enough research to find my parents. And I didn't know where he would be because I know that my mom met him when you know, in Cuba um, in, you know, like late 59, right before uh, the Castro revolution. So she was like one of the last waves of tourists to go to Cuba before they shut it down. Uh, But then I was born here and, you know, I didn't know a lot of these details at first um, until, so I, I tried, I just got some information when I was 18 and I didn't really want to, you know, act on it. I just wanted to know more. And I had right. the little details that, you know, kind of filled in the picture a little bit. And then I didn't do anything about it again until I was in my mid-30s. And I was working for Philip Glass and doing these big projects and, you know, touring around the world. And I felt like, you know, I would love for my parents to know that, you know, like I'm, I am you know, came out okay. That I, <laughs> you know, that growing up in the household was You know, it was good that my parents loved me, that I had a great family, that had a good childhood. Right. And so I tried to find my mom because I knew at least she was American. You know, I didn't, I figured I couldn't find out anything about my father unless I went through her. And so I did more research and more inquiries, and I hit a dead end because in New York State, you know, they won't reunite uh, a parent with a birth child unless both parties register with this agency in gotcha. and right. so I did all of this, you know, paperwork and sent things away. And then it finally came back months later saying, we're sorry, you know, there's no match. So I gave it up. I thought, okay, you know, what just wasn't meant to be. And then a few years later, like, um, I guess I was just about, I was 40 and Tammy decided to look into her, biological parents and she had never done it, right. not, you know, when I tried twice and I said, well, I want to go with you. It's in New York. You know, I live in New York. Like, let's go together and see what you find out. I'm really excited for you. And maybe I'll find out something else. And so we both went to the agency and it turned out that in the years since I had last gone to look for my parents, they had changed some of their, the, the, restrictions and the, you know, and the regulations. And so Tammy got more information than I did. And so I said, well, hey, you know, when I did it, you know, I I only got these like three little pieces of information. So the, uh, the caseworker said, well, you know, let me look in your file. And she got us both enough information that we were able to go to the public library, the branch on 42nd Street, to the records room. And by using the Serial numbers on our birth certificates, which had been amended to include our, you know, the parents who raised us, they were listed as the mother and father, but the serial number was the same. And when you're born in New York City, your birth is, you know, put in this register, it's like a one line thing for each person born. And it's your birth certificate serial number, and then it has your date of birth and your male, female, and then it has your birth parents information unaltered wow. but you you know i was sitting there for 40 years and i i didn't know it and tammy didn't know it wow so we just, both
0: yeah just sitting there on fifth avenue in in one of the pretty buildings sight. right yeah
1: so we both were like oh my god so we have to like go home and go you know get on you know, like google and you know start you know looking for information and um so it took a little bit longer but eventually i did we both connected with our birth mothers. Um, her f- birth biological father was still, al- uh, you know, alive and living in California, and so she found both of her parents. Who were, they were not together. I eventually found my mom, but my mom, you know, she didn't keep in touch with my father for very long after she came back from that trip because, you know, she was like twenty-three years old and she was about to start a career in nursing. Right. You know, she knew that, you know, he wasn't going to. Uh, leave Cuba and she wasn't going to move there and by then everything had shut down
0: right so um and people today will not have any clue as to the intensity of that whole political like when Cuba was basically like an adult disney world for yeah. americans yeah. uh you know or a vegas even frankly part of the yeah, things it was, of casinos and right and then all, all of a sudden it was communist with a capital c and absolutely terrifying whether it was or not i don't know but the government decided it was terrifying there was the embargo and Mm -hmm. suddenly the missile like cuba became such a hot point that there was no way that you were gonna get involved is something happening technically to you yes my loom cube just like the suction just died. Um,
1: hold on. You saw, yeah, you saw the lights go out. Oh. Yeah, I. I you know, they don't. They don't show you this. Um, you know, in the ads for this product, that it's like it. it's oh, a cool. With this thing, I mean, I. You know. Anyway, usually it's okay, but let me just put it back on.
0: I'm um, not doing video on this, by the way. It's just audio, okay. But, but, but I mean, I'd it's like just going to, nice to be able so. to.
1: Anyway, you know what? There, we'll we'll do awesome natural light. Um well yes, I mean, and and also just you know the, the the political um fallout, you know, just the way the situation in, in Florida and the way you know just how those Cubans think about themselves and about other Latino immigrants and cultures in this country is kind of a little bit warped,
0: I you know, between you and me. Um uh, I, I... I deal with a lot of immigration issues as an attorney. I'm not an immigration attorney, but I do part of what I do is criminal work that involves immigration issues for some people who aren't documented. And mm-hmm. long story short, there's plenty of internal Latin American racism yeah. and big divides politically in very short amounts of geography. Mm-hmm. So I get what you're saying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um you know, and that, that, those are all things that I've learned. Um, but, you know, so the cube, so I, you know, still was, you know, like hadn't find my, found my dad. Um, I'm going to like hop over a big chunk and then I can go back. But so the, the big irony is that last, this past May, when I turned 60, we had a trip. Well, actually it was, we planned it in, it was going to be in mid-March uh, we planned a trip to cuba wow and i was you know had some information to like look for my biological father and i was going to bring music and i planned on finding opportunities to sing and you know and just connect that way and we were supposed to leave like it was like a week after the shutdown
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know we and they hadn't canceled the trip and we thought like should we go can we go like nobody knew how bad everything was going to get right And we actually decided we would wait and see what the, you know, we were going with, um, what's it called? Uh, Road Scholar, Uh, you know, that outfit. And, but, Mm -hmm. you know, then a few days later they said, you know, everything is being canceled. I mean, we thought, you know, we could go and then be stuck for a while and not like, because the flights were restricted and you couldn't get out. So So that's like a really bitter irony that came like right at the beginning of the pandemic experience was that this trip that I had been looking forward to for my entire life um, got,
0: you know, yanked away for now. Right. Well, you do not strike me as a bitter person in the least. Every time I see pictures (laughs) of you, well, there's a, you know, what's interesting is your journey, which of course I don't really know, except looking at pictures and some stuff that, Going way back to the beginning of it, uh, well, at least after college, I had said to you, I think before we started recording, that the last time I literally saw you, I was either finishing law school or graduated. And I went to the old Barneys at 7th Avenue and 17th Street, which, by the way, I was literally there yesterday with my wife. We're redoing our apartment. And this sounds so posh New Yorker, but we have a designer mm-hmm. and we went into one of the, it's a big design area now. Uh, yeah. Right? Jensen or the, uh, or the one across the street. I think it's called EQ three was one yeah, of the yeah, places yeah. we went to, to yeah. look at a sofa and some other things. Did you and go to room and board? We did. We love room okay. and board. It's Actually, good. room oh. and board is our favorite. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to get too much into gender identity at the moment i'll just say i've dated everybody but i never feel so straight as when i'm in a furniture store and i start to zone out as (laughs) women start talking about uh you know upholstery options and i'm sort of like isn't this good enough like (laughs) they're all gray like i don't you know but anyway uh and then you say yes dear (laughs) well that's the other thing is i'm like i've I know I sound like a complaint, but the truth is I have surrendered. Like I know it's going to be great and I haven't surrendered, like succumbed to it more like, I'm just going to let this happen. You're you're trusting. Yeah. My wife is brilliant and she has a great sense of a lot of things. And I'm just, I'm, we're not going to live in a bad place. It's Mm going to be great. Um, But anyway, the Rubin museum is there and right around the corner is where I last saw you, which is, really funny. Uh, you were working at Barney's and uh, you looked like a million bucks. You were obviously in a Barney suit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I remember, I think they had a thing called the Madison room, which yes. had like a natural shoulder. And yeah. that's where I went. I was even telling my wife, Holly, they had this great ad at one point. You could put up, if you didn't want to be bothered by a salesperson, there was something I, I think it, it said, I'm just looking maybe, or... Yeah, it was yeah. a button that said, just looking. And if it you had to... meant leave on, me alone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But there was a great ad campaign where somebody yeah. wore the button and then wanted help. And all the salespeople were running away from them because they didn't <laughs> want to bother them. Anyway, um It was a very, it, you know, it was a pretty posh
1: place to work. I mean, at least, you know, on the, on, you know, not the uh, behind the scenes you know, the tailor shop and the lunchroom and the punch, you know, the way you punched in, I mean, all, you know, the lockers, I mean, that was all pretty rank and file, but I mean, that was the job I did, you know, instead of, you know, most performers will go into restaurant work, you know, because you can come and go. And, but that job was really flexible for me. And when I got out of school, I, because I left NYU, I was already in an apartment in New York you know, paying rent Right, and needed to keep that going and didn't want to move back to Long Island or move back home. And so I, I had started working there part-time when I was in school. And then when I got out of school, they offered me, you know, full-time and I did sort of like full-time or like heavy part-time. And, and while I was starting to get more and more music work and, you know, eventually it became, you know, I started to cut my schedule down and down and down, and I started getting more success and, you know, performing more. And it got to the point where sometimes I would work like three hour shift once every two weeks.
0: Just to keep your face in the store. Just to keep my
1: face in the store. And then finally, one of my managers said, Greg, you know, what are you doing? (laughs) I I think you can, I think you're, you're ready to go. And I was like, you know, you're right. Um, So here's the funny thing about apartments and that neighborhood. Um, You don't know this, but I live on the corner of 20th and 7th.
0: Okay, that is Chelsea, like central Chelsea. Chelsea,
1: Flatiron, you know, awesomeness. And moved into that building in 94. So this was a building, this beautiful old Art Deco, six-story building on the corner. And at that point, like in the early 90s, I was volunteering at GMHC um, in the kitchen and so, I for people to, who don't know
0: what that is, is that the gay uh, men's health crisis? Gay men's
1: health crisis. That's a okay. original location.
0: I mean, it started, and that organization, without getting too lost in that, really started it. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. So, this is perfect. Started with the AIDS epidemic around the time when I last saw you, which was yeah, the was late '80s. Late '80s. Yeah. So, interesting. Great, great segue, Greg. You're great at this.
1: Well, I just <laughs> happened to be, you know, I would pass this building on my way to uh to gmhc and i would often fantasize like wow what would it be like to live in this building because it has this great lobby and has this it's an art deco building for the like like sort of mid-30s and don't you know that um a couple of years later philip and i were looking for an apartment and this is when you still would look in the new york times for the listing <laughs> pre-internet wow and you would buy it sunday night And Mm -hmm. look, because all the listings that would be ready to go on Monday. And, you know, we had been looking and we'd seen some things and nothing seemed right. And then this listing just like popped out at my, you know, right out at my face and, you Mm -hmm. know, art deco building, blah, 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 one bedroom apartment, you know, Chelsea. And I just knew when I read that ad, I said, this is the apartment for us. And so at the time, there was a gas station across the street from the building so you know there's no high-rise it was this, you know flat lot with the you know the station and the pumps. Right, right and when i walked into the apartment you know the building manager opened the door and my eye it almost felt like one of those reverse tracking shots <laughs> in a film where like you know you like you back up really fast right because my eye went all the way to 17th street and i could see Barney's. Whoa. where I had quit working two years earlier because I was finally, you know, working enough as a performer that I didn't need to work there, and uh, it just cracked me up. I was like, I like, I can see that building where I spent, you know, thirteen years of my life working.
0: That's amazing, and and what I love about this, by the way, is you you point out that you've been with your husband. You guys are married. Yeah. Is that the is that your husband? You've been together a long time. We've been together for 31 years. I just first of all, <laughs> I, I love that because it's so is antithetical to the bs stereotypes of whatever gay men are supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure look, there's lots of different people of every type of sexual preference or whatever, but there's plenty of long-term married gay people and I just like that you're two of them um and what's that well no go ahead sorry no i was gonna say i mean go ahead tell me what you're gonna say um well I, i i guess i was gonna say that you know
1: i mean some people have the whole notion of being gay for a lot of gay people means breaking the norms and not necessarily wanting to conform or trying to conform to societal norms but you know we both um you know, we were more interested in, you know, the, I don't know, like the intimacy and the trust and the, uh, you know, compatibility, I mean, it was all about compatibility on so many different levels and the interest in being in something that was sustained as opposed to like, you know, jumping from one thing to the other or like just being, you know, I mean, some people are independent enough that they, you know, they don't mind, or they they, they they would rather have their independence and have relationships that, you know last for however long or not.
0: Um I'm definitely a partner person and yeah, I mean
1: I always kind of was.
0: Uh so yeah. Well good for you. But I'm that's awesome. And it's also awesome that you survived what had to be a terrifying well, I was terrified. And we've all lost people. It was
1: uh yeah, it was a I mean, and now we're living through another terrible time of, you know, losing people.
0: Um, what I think is interesting is there are some similarities. In uh, this may be a reach, but during the AIDS crisis, w- it was generally thought of that this was a gay person's problem. Exactly. Yeah. So large elements of the society, more conservative, let's say. I want to. I do want to point fingers, but again. There were lots of people who either ignored it downplayed it didn't want to fund things and it actually created a tremendous sense of community in the gay community which brought about things like backed up sure and and mm-hmm. gay men's health and, crisis.
1: Of, and god's love we deliver you know. oh
0: i i used to walk by god's love all the time because i had an office on varick street mm-hmm. and i believe that was there <laughs> at that uh at yeah. the a or the c coming out there but um but today Yes, it can affect anyone, but and, and it may be affecting everyone now at this point, but for a long time it felt early on it was very uh very much I'm talking about COVID now, was very city dense population focused. Blue. Exactly. And yeah. so it wasn't a priority for certain political people.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and probably even, you know, the day that we're talking, I don't know when this will air a Republican not yet congressman from Louisiana died yeah. of COVID at 41. And, yeah. So you don't have no, to be old. Underli-
1: no underlying conditions.
0: Uh, that's pretty terrifying. That should, freak pe- that should freak people out. Yeah. And it's not though, because it's not yeah. part of their political agenda to freak out about it. No. Um, just to be clear, I had COVID. I did not have a bad course of it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, In February, Holly and I made our last trip overseas to Madrid, had an awesome time a week in Madrid, Mm -hmm. developed a cough when I came back that just wouldn't go away, Mm -hmm. would sweat through the sheets, but I still went to my office. This is so stupid, but, and I like day quilled all day and night quilled all night and toughed it out. There, it was just different than any other cough or wheezing thing I ever had. And eventually I got better, but it dragged, it really dragged on. So at the time,
1: I mean, you, you were aware that the virus existed, but you just no. you didn't equate or you didn't know.
0: We didn't know it was February. And See, it that... wasn't until March that I became aware. Wow. Uh, the president of course knew in yeah. January.
1: Yes. Thank you, Bob Woodward.
0: Yeah. Um, and for and, something, right. Immediately I stopped going to my office as soon as I heard what it was. Um, and we did, you know, we did the like, oh, let's be smart and stay where we are. And then Holly turned to me one night she goes, you know, I think you had this. Mm-hmm. And we go to a doctor for some hormone stuff. And he did a blood draw and he's like, can you do a COVID test? They do an antibody test, mm-hmm. um, which apparently is very accurate because they go right into your blood as opposed to the nasal swab i don't know yeah i have the antibodies like i wow i had. and by the way months later still had plenty of antibodies in my system Mm -hmm. so i had it but my point is i'm 59 i was 58 when i got it it was hard on me but it wasn't like i didn't come close to thinking i had to go to the hospital yeah there are famous there was a guy on Broadway, much better shaped than the yes, younger, yes, um, long drawn out illness, and eventually died. And we're going to have tons of these stories, and we're going to have another lost generation. You know, it's like World War One had their lost generation of people as a result of that craziness. Then, because of AIDS, we lost. You know, there's always going to be like a photo. Uh, what do they call montage? Montage, right? Of the more popular people, of like you know Keith Haring and whatever. But there's every family. I mean, yeah, lots touches. of people know people who died from AIDS. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to have this next generation of promising. They don't all have to be singers or stars. Of it, they're just people. They're family members. They're all gone. Mm-hmm. And it's we're now. I read this statistic: one in a thousand Americans has died. Yeah, COVID. That's. I don't know. That's fucking nuts. I've got no other way to put it. It's yeah. The, all right. Uh, uh, so you, nav- but you navigated that, like, do you, was it just because you were in a committed relationship? Were you lucky? I honestly, you... I honestly do
1: think it was. And I mean, the irony is that the, the relationship at the time when it was most crucial to not be out in the world, you know, dating and whatnot, um, it was the worst relationship of my life in terms of, you know, ultimately it was, you know, just. Not your it was husband. Just, No, no, no. This is like five years before. I mean, it was, you know, it got really sour and really ugly. And like, you know, it was like, you know, George and Martha, you know, uh, who's afraid of Virginia (laughs) Woolf kind of, you know, not good. And finally I got my courage up to just, you know, go out and I just, you know, got a you know, looked through roommate services and found a, a, a place to live that was not with him and broke up. And got on my feet. Um, but Clearly I really did do, well. I do think that being in a relationship at that time, or you're being and being a person who wanted to be committed and not, you know, in a relationship and fooling around on the side, um, that had a lot to do with it, just you know, kind of sheltered. Yeah. But I been you know, I lost friends and I I lost a, a you know, a really wonderful partner that I met you know, like right around the time that I saw you. Um and he ended up uh, dying. Um, I'm sorry. But, you know, I did, was not uh, impacted by that other than, you know, losing him and mourning him. So it's just, uh, you know, you just, you don't know.
0: It Yeah, I just think that, you know, my, my wife, Holly, had uh, several friends who also she would walk their dogs as they were slowly dying in their apartments and mm-hmm. near Astor Place or wherever in the East Village she was at that time. I think we're at we don't know what's gonna ultimately be the fallout of this. Um but yeah, we're, we're still, all, you know, Fauci says
1: that this is you know next month is going to be the toughest in a way. We'll
0: see. I'm gonna do the worst segue ever okay. and say you eventually got to op well i'm wondering if we should do this chronologically you know you get out of your conservatory experience Mm -hmm. you not you hit the streets of performers and like (laughs) what were your first gigs what was the way you got your feet wet in the business
1: um one of them was uh, getting into the chorus at new york city opera which i did for you know about i don't know five or six years i think um, because that was a union job, and a, you know, and I wasn't in all of the shows, so I was still able to do other work. One of, the, and you know, I got I got um, connected to contractors in New York who would hire you for the big professional gigs at the Philharmonic or at Carnegie Hall, at BAM. Um, yeah. And then I was also once I got out of school, I was also being hired as a soloist, and I saw myself going more into the concert world of oratorio, you know like doing the Brahms requiem or you know a Bach B minor mass, uh, the Messiah, doing solos, you know and where it wasn't staged, you know, it was like
0: concert music. Or sometimes um, I assume you do church gigs too, which are I do are church lucrative. gigs.
1: Yeah, I've been at St. John the Divine the cathedral for uh, quite a few years.
0: That's you but, know being a New Yorker, I mean that's one of the reasons why you need to be in New York, and I'm glad you are. But because you're not going to get those kind of gigs in Kansas or you know Milwaukee. Probably. No,
1: I mean there. I mean I think you know, some people can find ways, but you know it's just the opportunities aren't as uh, vast as they yeah. are here. You know, and and the networking—it's just the, it's a bigger pool or pond, so there are more people to meet and more people to interact with more people to connect with i mean so much of the work that i've been i've done some work online during the pandemic and it's because of relationships that i've sustained over like 30 years with composers and um you know conductors that i've worked with again we've been out of touch a long time but you
0: absolutely don't strike me as a diva you did you weren't when we were in massapequa <laughs> no. but, but but what's great about that is having worked on both sides of the desk myself, having produced Mm -hmm. as well as performed, you know, talent is great, but there's a lot of talent in New York. The truth be told is it's really important to not like have that stomach ache when you're walking into the room that Mm -hmm. I got to deal with this a-hole now, or why are they late this time? Or, you know, fill in the blank of the problem when you are like, you this is your thing you've been working on for two years to put together and yeah you want the people who are having fun with it who are excited and who are you know in the sports world they say they they're a good bench player meaning like even if they're not in the field they make everybody feel good in the clubhouse or something Mm -hmm. you know yeah and you strike me as that guy i'm not blowing smoke it's just would you consider yourself one of those people Uh, i i would
1: um you know when i was doing the Cougat Orchestra, um, which was almost 10 years uh, that I was doing it. It's right now, you know, nothing, there's no live touring or live anything. So it's kind of everything is on pause, but I, and even before that, I I started, so I got the Cougat thing happened because I started doing cabaret shows like in the late eighties, working with a really brilliant, friend of mine pianist and he's also a singer and composer but you know we did these really great shows and then I started to tour more with Philip Glass and do the and other projects and that I was involved in and so I kind of got away from it but I always really found it satisfying and I loved it Um, and then when I got through the I guess like the 80s and and like even into the 90s and when when 9-11 happened that was like a wake-up call it was like you've got to start doing this again. Like, why are you not doing shows? And I had some ideas that I had written down in a book, you know, some time ago. And one of them was to do a show, you know, examining Desi Arnaz's career and my identification with him as a role model because I was adopted. And so I wrote this show and I did all of this research about him and about his business career, his musical career, his life, his life before he was, you know, famous And that was a show that really got me attention in New York. And I, you know, got great reviews and I got an award from Backstage Magazine.
0: What was that show
1: called, by the way? It was called Baba Lucy, The Art of Desi Arnaz. Nice. That's awesome. Um, And so then these producers found out about it um, and they said, have you thought about adapting this and turning it into an off Broadway show? And I said, no, but that would be great. So I moved in that direction and worked really hard and we got it up and going. And it opened just a few weeks before the 2008 crash. <laughs> when, you know, like-
0: The Lehman Brothers destruction.
1: When like real Broadway shows like had to close down. So my little off-off Broadway show that I had in my baby uh, was put to rest, which was really uh, sad. And
0: there other- was- where was it when it... Um, I did died. it at the Actors' Temple on 47th Street. Okay, I actually, I've seen showcases there. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. It's a really cool old building. It's a very cool old building with a, an amazing history of,
1: you know, the all the old entertainers and the comics they used. That's where they would go to
0: shul, you know, when yeah. they were working in the theater district. And before that, when you were doing your um, cabaret stuff, were you at, like Don't Tell Mama? Or... I was at
1: Don't Tell Mama. I was at Helen's, um, which was a club on 8th Avenue. I did 55 Grove Street. I did the Metropolitan
0: Room. I love um, the Metropolitan Room. You know, that That's a great a... cabaret place.
1: And, uh, well, then you know, it, it closed down. Um, oh. It's did... been out... It's been out for a while, actually. Wasn't there Um, a downstairs? Yes, there was a small, there was a bar downstairs. And that was a great room. I did several shows there. I did some shows at Feinstein's before they moved to 54 Below. Um, I did a show with, that I I wasn't, I was in, I didn't produce it. Mm -hmm. That was Brel Asnevour, P F music, French. (laughs) With, you know, four singers. And we did a really nice show there. That's like a cabaret
0: dream show.
1: Oh, it was great. It was a really, it was well curated. Yeah. I mean, the material, you know, like you don't, you have to like pull things out. You can't, like there are too many good songs to include. Yeah. But but I want to get back to like Desi. Please. Finally, this is like all going back to Cougar that you mentioned like almost an hour ago. (laughs) So, and also being a diva. Um, see, I'm trying to, like, remember all the threads to keep them pulled together. Thank God for you, because I'm all over the place. So I, you know, so I did the Desi show, and then, it, you know, moved to Off-Broadway, closed. But then somebody, a, a director in on Long Island at Hofstra University, I met him through a promoter. And he said, this show is amazing. Like, let's do it out here, and let's get, you know, we'll try to get some other people interested. And we reworked, re-worked the whole show. And did it, and while I was getting ready to do that show, the director heard from this couple who had been running the Kugat Orchestra. They had like bought the rights and the music from Kugat when he was retired, and they had been touring it with good success. And they were ready to retire. They wanted somebody else to take it over. And one day, the you know the husband was the piano player, and he was like the agent for the. Ensemble. It was like, oh my god, look at this! There's this guy doing Jesse arnaz over at Hofstra, and they lived in
0: (laughs) they lived in uh, Plainview. Oh my god! And for people who don't know, Plainview is like a fifteen minute like drive (laughs) from Massapequa Park where we grew up, and And Hofstra uh, is and also Hofstra.
1: Yeah. So so they tracked me down and they came to see me and they're like, we want you to do this. So that's how I got that gig. Wow. And so the whole point about being a diva is that like I always treated my guys with great respect, my players, because I was also a performer. I was on that side of the table, but now I was producing, so to speak, and handling the bookings and right. and handling the costumes and the library of music. So I wasn't just the performer. I was also the, you know, wearing all the hats and you said, you know, you, you walk in, you don't want to walk in and say, Oh God, I have to deal with this a-hole. And, you know, musicians can be the players, horn players, they can be real divas. <laughs> well,
0: I, you know, I, I asked because, uh, my experience is, well, not exactly like yours. Uh, I've done tons of off Broadway or showcase things. I've done indie films, again, both sides of the table on all those projects mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know filling out 3000 pages of union forms uh and all you know whatever it's just there's there's always a lot more than people think it's mm-hmm. not just okay we've got a place we'll get five people and we'll throw this thing up yeah. it's very complicated well, um well you know
1: when they hired me i thought you know i was going to do the show and then you know one time i went to have dinner with at their house and then and they were like okay here you go and they're like handing me you know these cases of you know the 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 bandstands and the costumes and like all of a sudden i'm like how do i schlep any of this anywhere <laughs> you know, get it home find a storage place for it and then maintain it and keep it you know shipping it or you know when we would tour so i did some work with them in florida i the, the pinnacle of that project so far has been the montreal jazz festival which i did like oh wow about two years ago um But it's just, you know, it's hard. It's, you know, it's an, it's an, it's vintage music. And like when you saw Tito Puente, you know, you, that even that music, it's just, it's the Latin music and the the rhythm and the energy, like it just grabs you. Like it doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel stayed. It's not like going to see Glenn Miller, which I love, you know, I love all of the big band repertoire, but like when I'm, you know, play, you know, when they're playing those tunes that I'm conducting or I'm singing with them, it is just the most awesome feeling.
0: Well, you know, uh, again, similar musical background to some degree. Uh, I, when I really got into land, to dancing to mm-hmm. specifically Mambo, not Salsa, so yeah. I'm dancing on the two for you dance people, yeah. not on the one, yeah. which is very different. <laughs> it's very yeah, and Mambo music is very different. But when you get that the piano often goes from being the melody to being a percussion instrument. Mm-hmm. And the, the the piano is keeping the rhythm as much, if not more, than the timbales, because a lot of those percussion guys are going to start taking solos. And yeah. people, if they follow those guys, all is lost. And I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of the way that I got into the groove dancing. And then you just forget. You you can't think that music. Um, I was literally on hold recently, and Handel's water music was on.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and I had
0: played that as a cellist, and I'm listening to the cello parts. And that, it can't get whiter and more 4-4 than that experience. Mm-hmm. And Mambo is none of that. It's, yeah. you know, you listen to an old Celia Cruz record, mm-hmm. and it's a whole other ballgame. I, I'm very excited for you and your love for this because uh i'm now thinking i need to find some xavier cooke music cuz i don't have any wasn't he married
1: to charo? Am I- he was married to charo and he was married i mean i had a i did a whole bunch of research into his life as well i mean he was married he, he married all of his girls a lot of his girl singers i mean i think all of his wives were in the band
0: well maybe that's so, uh, could be said abby, of me as well
1: <laughs> um gosh what's her name abby lane uh um oh um, it's blanking on me now. His first wife, actually, she was still alive. She just passed away about a year and a half ago. Um, oh, gosh. Anyway,
0: out of mind. That's okay. We can, you know, people can other, look other, it up, you know. One and one if, they have, if they have questions, they can go to isthatreallylegal.com and write me to complain or mm-hmm. set us straight or whatever they want to do. Well, kuga um, you know, Cougat was, he was like Desi Arnaz of
1: the radio era. I mean, he had that level of fame. That's, you know, people don't realize it because, you know, Desi came into his own on TV, which was so widespread and, you know, just reaching, you know, households across the country. Whereas Kugat was big in the uh, radio era. And also he did quite a few, um, You know, they would have his band would be featured in some of these lavish MGM musicals because they were that well known. He had, you know, he had candy bars named after him. Um, You know, there was marketing and merchandise. I mean, he was the first commercially successful
0: Latino artist in the United States. I know that he would be mentioned like not as a joke, but within a joke, say on the Carson show or referred Mm -hmm. to like that era of comedian would know about cougat yeah he was he was he was a reference point he was a cultural uh buoy on the journey of those people you know as they navigated their careers because mm-hmm. he would be i'm sure he would be in vegas or the equivalent of vegas exactly. for a lot of those stand-ups and yeah. they might even open for him or vice versa you know that, that, that the relationship between comics and musicians has always been a tight one um, and you know, that sort of Rickles Sinatra thing, like the, it mm-hmm. goes from that to current, like more contemporary comedians who are really great friends with rock and roll people. Uh, it's just, it's a very, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon. Um, so well, at, yeah, no, just
1: a, a, like a quick interjection of a very fun thing that I did, um, because you're talking about comics. And so. The wonderful, marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, I did a, I did a voiceover for a fake record that is used in a very pivotal episode um, when her father is trying to uh, potty train the grandson.
0: I will have to relook at that. So, uh, uh, I thought uh, I've seen everything, but I will. I'm... Well, I mean,
1: you know, it's it, it's like played. Well, it's in the background, but it's not in the background because you hear it. Uh, Because it has it like it, you know, that show is so well written and everything, you know, everything fits together, you know, so beautifully. So it actually serves a a dramatic purpose as well as a comic purpose within the context of the scene and the episode. Um, Anyway, well, I just comics and music.
0: Yeah. I mean, even from the very first episode of that show, uh, I was hooked on it because of the. I mean, I just knew that she was based on some people that we, you know, people forget people like Todi Fields. I mean, she oh, wasn't Todi Fields, but, yeah. but Tony Fields was such a mainstay of our youth as a, a funny woman, you know, Phyllis Diller. <laughs> and of course, um, Joan. Joan Rivers. Yeah. I mean, she's so Joan Rivers, just a little bit removed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's fascinating and it's really smart and it's interesting you know, there is no TV anymore, really. All the best TV is streamed. You can mm-hmm. watch it on your computer. The yeah. whole show business has been so transformed by technology. And now by this and, you know, and moving into the, you know, to the forefront
1: or moving up to the forefront because of our isolation right now, it's like even more so it's like even screened, you know, what you would go and see in a movie theater is coming directly to a streaming platform.
0: Plus, what's interesting is again talking with Holly about this yesterday. Is we're walking, no, this morning I, I was thinking, I don't remember what movies I've seen lately, I do remember what mini series I've seen. Yeah, so if I was a producer or a money person in a studio, and I would be thinking much more like Queen's Gambit or mm-hmm. The Undoing because I've got more time to tell my story, yeah, I can my production values are still crazy high, right? None of these things looks thrown together. If mm-hmm. anything, quite the opposite. I mean, the Queen's Gambit, the wardrobe yeah. people... Oh my God, the whole... Hit this, it out of the yeah, park. The art directions fantastic. Right. And you're talking about, what, five or six hours of performance? I mean, ultimately, when it's all said and done, that must have yeah. taken months to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, We have no idea... Well, I did hear an interview on Fresh Air, not a competitor, sorry, <laughs> but, but where it was said like over 60 million downloads of that show. And that doesn't really mm-hmm. surprise me because um, it's just brilliant on every level. Lo- I assume you've seen it. It's yes, brilliant yes. on every level. Um, and then you go, okay, well, what movie, like the most recent movie we saw oddly enough was Coco, which was a beautiful uh-huh. animation. Also yeah. beautiful, great music, like an awesome story but it's a disney animation. Like what what movie has impacted you the way that some of these Did you see The Undoing on HBO? Watch the um, yes, I've seen The Undoing. Okay, now I'm uh, not going to give away who it was, but did you guess who it was? Who yes. committed the crime? You did we did not nor did our friends. Ah. I I overthought it. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But that's kind of my mo. I think. <laughs> no, you know. I, I will say this: every performance blew me away. Mm-hmm. that, and again, great story. New York is a whole other character. We could talk yeah. for hours about that too. Yeah, that's always um, fun when you when you,
1: you know, I love seeing any place I've been. It could be it could be Madrid. It could be San Francisco. Uh, Did you love you, Madrid?
0: I mean, oh yes, yes. Oh, you were you the you? Were one I think I, who I think told I told me to go to Toledo. Yeah. It was the best. First of all, I will say this for people when you get to travel again, go to Madrid. It is mm-hmm. a beautiful city. It, it has perhaps the nicest subway I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. It's quiet. People are actually crazy friendly in Madrid, in my experience. I speak enough Spanish that it was fine. And they also, plenty of people speak English if you really get stuck. I'm sure your Spanish is better than mine. Um, it's okay. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm good enough to get around. But um, Going to Toledo, we did a, a large thing. We went to Toledo. We got a car, like, like a special thing that took us there with another couple. We literally walked around in Toledo, hit all these amazing, amazing cathedral and the Jewish quarter and whatever. Like, And then we got in the van and we went up to a bullfighting farm where they raise bullfighting bulls.
1: Hmm.
0: And it's in the middle of nowhere, it's huge. There's also a hunting club aspect of it. And we ate and drank and hung out and it was just a gorgeous, beautiful day all around. Mm. So thank you for that recommendation. So glad uh, got to do that. Oh, me too, because Toledo is uh, breathtaking. Yeah, it's a special place. Yeah, we'll have to go back after the pandemic. We're is there something fantasizing, some, <laughs> fantasizing this, about where we're going to go? Anyway, we, we have a trip to France planned. Uh, Holly has two stepsons who are, live just outside of Paris. <laughs> oh, fantastic! And, and I have a friend who owns a hotel in Chinon. She's been oh. a guest.
1: I've been. We stayed in Chinon.
0: <gasps> that's Joan of Arc. <laughs> I wonder no, I mean, if you stayed you know, at her
1: hotel. But. we well, you know, we I think we we may have it may have been called the Jeanne d'Arc. I mean, I. Uh, I That was, uh, we did a trip, we went to Burgundy and the Loire Mm -hmm. uh, and Chinon was one of the places that I wanted to stay because it, you know, it was close to some of the chateau, but also the history. Like you go up the ramparts of this, you know, the, the remains of part of the original fortress and it's like where Joan of Arc like went to the king and, you know, you know, pleaded
0: with him didn't work out for her i i hate to oh. do the spoiler alert here don't bet on jean but yeah. that's another story for another time but I interrupted there, you. you were gonna say is there okay Well, oh, i'm just gonna you know it's a silly question i was gonna ask you which is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about i just hate keeping you you know super long but I have a feeling that I could do a part 2 with you. I've threatened several people with that, so I'm going to threaten feel you with like that.
1: Good. I think, you know, there's some details that, you know.
0: Like I have a I
1: I have like a this, lot of Philip
0: Glass questions. I was like, just going
1: to say like there that's a whole that's a big I mean he's been my my most faithful and long-term employer. I mean, and a and a friend. I mean, I've come to know him uh personally and I mean, he picks up my calls. That's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, well, that,
0: <laughs> right. I mean, what else can you I mean, say? The,
1: the last project I did before the shutdown, which closed oh. like five days before the shutdown, was this opera that you know he wrote for me and a colleague of mine who's also worked with him for some years. You know, he adapted this surrealist play by a Cuban-American. Actually, no, she was entirely Cuban. I'm sorry. Cuban playwright. It was a big deal in the 70s. Um, and beyond as a, you know, an unsung playwright, but who is highly admired in that world. And he created this really crazy project that we did that was going to tour like mad. And I, you know, fingers crossed it will, but I'll tell you more about that. Well, yeah, I I do know. know
0: I saw you in a costume, which is like, yeah, you had no hair and you were a man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very funny to me.
1: And I think the makeup I look like, you know, um, Walter, um, what's this? The character, uh, Breaking Bad,
0: Walter Uh-oh, Walter White. White, thank you. Yeah.
1: It kind of had a Cranston look
0: with, you know. Yeah, I, it was. I, I do not know a lot of <laughs> Philip Glass. I have heard parts of. He did an Edgar Allan Poe opera, mm-hmm. right? Was it. It wasn't Masquerade Death or Pisture, Pit and Pen. P- he did something that was based on Edgar Allan Poe. And it played at the ART in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, sure. And I I used to try out for things at the ART when I lived at Boston. I was up for some Shakespeare there a million years ago, but I would never be up for an opera and certainly was not up for this kind of work. But you know, if you go to the ART, they do a lot of cutting edge stuff and I'd seen some pictures from it. Um, I personally, with all my musical background, find mr glass's work incredibly challenging Mm -hmm. and i would imagine that is one of the allures for you it is it's a great and i would imagine and elaborate and then we'll we'll end for now but it seems like it's both uh very intellectual but also tremendously emotional it is
1: um because yeah you know it there's a intellectual rigor to performing it because it's so, it can be so incessant, you know, just, it's, just a churning rhythm, but there's also something very emotional about, you know, the, the way he plays with major minor, you know, just shifting back and forth, you know, over these long periods of time and, you know, something transcendent about it because it's a lot of it's, you know, based on his, time with Ravi Shankar, you know, like, you know, learning about Raga and studying Raga. Um, so it, it's, you know, there's this uh, Eastern imprint on top of the music, you know, although he's like a, this Western guy from Baltimore, you know, so.
0: Right. Well, I mean, there's a trance-like quality to be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of, oddly enough, the most challenging thing I've done was when I did a couple of times. Sure. And I I did an equity production of Into the Woods, Mm. and I did a semi-pro version of Merrily, We Roll Along. Who were you in in, Into the Woods? I was Cinderella's father. I had the smallest role. Okay. But but (laughs) I literally would be – there's a point called The First Midnight where you're standing as a group and – I pretty much was in 4-4 four, four for my whole thing. One at midnight, one midnight, one minute gun into whatever. Mm-hmm. There's some lead up to it. I can't remember now. But I'd be standing next to someone who was in 3-4. Yeah. And someone else would. And and we'd have these strange. Again, it was the. There were a whole bunch of sections. Um, there's another part where you go. Though it's deep, though it's dark. and You may lose the path. Though you may cut to wolves. You mustn't. And then like we all merge like this giant confused fugue and -hmm. then it goes back into a melody to like end the maybe the first act but that is sort of that like oh shit i gotta hang on to my part yeah but i can't but i can't hang on to it as if i'm by myself here no and i have to see myself as a tiny piece of this other big thing and i i worship mr sondheim and i loved into the woods And I have to confess this every night when we would end with the children will listen into Mm -hmm. the finale. I cried. I was crying on stage. That music. It just to this day, it moves me. I just, it's, uh, it's a,
1: it's a beautiful, beautiful score. Um, I was dating a a guy who played in the pit for that show. And so I got to go to the opening night party.
0: Was that the Bernadette?
1: Yes the original one in in eighty, I guess 88 87 88 um and then I got invited or he got invited to a party Sondheim had a party just for the cast and the musicians in the pit Uh at his home on you know 52nd street I think 51st and so I got to you know go there and be in his house and poke around and got to speak with him and sat next to Bernadette Peters on a piano bench and you know, drooled for a while. <laughs> Again, and he, she, she's so tiny. You could yeah. put her in your pocket. Except for her hair, which is
0: very big. <laughs> and she is like, a, I, I, I went to some guy to get audition music once, and he was her vocal coach. or, And that was right around where Juilliard is, so in like the 60s. And as I was going in, she was leaving. She was doing her best to camouflage herself. Yeah. She wore like a black baseball cap, mm-hmm. maybe sunglasses, but the hair, like you can't disguise the Bernadette hair. It's everywhere. And she was just like a tiny force of nature, which I think is what she that's, is. That's
1: that's her magic. Yeah. I was and, once online at Dean and DeLuca, you know, down <laughs> in broad, in broad, on Broadway and Soho. Yeah, I know it well. And I realized that she was next to me. She's in <laughs> front of me in line because there was the hair. <laughs> And I was able to, like, excuse me, like, we met. And she was like, oh, how are you? You know, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) it's pretty funny. Uh,
0: I think we should trade New York stories sometime. I would love
1: to. I want to hear more of yours. I want to hear more about, you know.
0: I met Kurt Vonnegut once. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met David Byrne in a Citibank line. (laughs) And I have a hard time keeping it together when I meet people of that ilk who mean a lot to me. And, um, but it's also one of the things I love about being in New York. We live in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live just a, really pretty close to the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, you can see the Statue of Liberty from our roof. Wow. I feel very lucky that my wife was smart enough to buy this apartment. Yeah. Or it became literally a movie star neighborhood. Like we have, I hold the door open for the people from the Americans, <laughs> not in our building, <laughs> but at the coffee shop yeah. and some other people. You live in, uh, a neighborhood that I actually know well because I had friends I used to stay with at a building called the Mercantile. Oh, sure. Which, which uh, And I used to go there when Tom Cruise had, was divorcing. the one, She lives there. And I had to go through press Katie. lines. Katie Holmes. Yeah. And uh, there's other famous people that live in that building. I'd always be like, oh, God, I can't. Chef Bobby Flay lives in that building. Okay. <laughs>
1: um, and other people. And, and that's a great neighborhood. I love that neighborhood. It's a fun neighborhood. It's and especially Seventh Avenue. It's like, it's not big and crazy it's like Sixth Avenue, you know, with all of the big box stores.
0: But you're close enough. You can go to Italy if you yeah. want to get something awesome. Yep. Um, or the,
1: or the Chelsea Market opened when we first moved. You know, when we moved in, when there was oh, nothing yeah. before it became you know the studio for the cooking network, or the food network.
0: Right, and there's so before many. Google great- moved into that building. I mean. Oh right. And and then also before the the Highline. Thank you. That's what I was looking yep. for. Um, My backyard. <laughs> it's a beautiful neighborhood. We're both very lucky. We are,
1: yeah. yes, absolutely. And we would uh, like, you know, to stuck it out all these years.
0: <laughs> uh, and I'm even going to say that it would be great when this is all over if we did a double date. I think I would we have are. a blast. You've mentioned that and we did but yeah, because we obviously both
1: like serious food and serious drink. So I think that would be great.
0: Awesome. That's a great note to end on for part yes. one. Greg. Happy new year to you. And oh, to-, to you too. And continued good health. Um, hugs to your husband and your whole family. Feel free to say hi to Tammy for me. It's been I even will. longer. I, I will. I, I saw her on Christmas Eve,
1: you know, zooming. Great. Everybody's well? Everybody's fine. Knock great. on wood. And uh, to... People out there listening to this, I wish you all a happy new year, stay safe, get through, you know, this next phase and let's like move beyond it and
0: come out stronger. Thanks, Greg. It's been awesome to spend time with you. Thanks for being on. It's this. Great to see really you. Cool. Thanks
1: so much for asking me, Eric. And uh, we'll do part two whenever. <laughs> 2021.
0: Oh my goodness that was so much fun i hope you enjoyed listening to greg as much as i enjoyed chatting with him uh if you did or if you didn't uh just drop me a line let me know go to is that really legal.com and leave me a message you know you can rate this podcast you can subscribe to this podcast do it do it now and then of course grab a handful of Abe's muffins and shove them in your face. They taste great and they won't kill you. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you soon.